0: Hey, what you looking at? Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up in the hour ahead, Patrick Smith shares the pilot's view from the cabin with tips for making your next flight a bit more of a
1: pleasure, like knowing where to look when your route takes you over Greenland. You look around the cabin and everybody's got their shades down. Nobody bothers to look outside, where if you took a peek, you'd see this incredible vista of glaciers and mountains. It almost looks like another planet. And guides from
0: Sorrento share how Italy's lemon-scented resort town is unrivaled for scenery, relaxation, or a fun stroll around town.
2: This is our fashion show. Dressing up, taking our children, taking the chihuahua dog sometimes with the Gucci collar. Everyone is there looking at us. That's what we're doing.
3: And the rest of southwest Italy? It's just a short hop away. And If you want to boat over to Capri, it's 25 minutes.
2: You want to go by train around
3: to Naples, it's 45 minutes. Flight advice, Sorrento, and listeners check in from
0: their travels. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. We've got advice from the pilot himself for making your next flight and coach a little less frantic. And we'll open the phones in a bit at 877-333-7425 to hear about your latest travel adventures today on Travel with Rick Steves. If you had to pick one town to base yourself at in Italy, one that gives you easy access to important historical sites yet has the relaxed air of a small resort, I'd say you couldn't go wrong with Sorrento. It's less than an hour by rail from the chaotic urban scene in Naples. Lovely Sorrento is wedged between mountains and the coast, and it's the starting point for the scenic winding drive down the Amalfi Coast. Aldo Valerio and Anne Long are two guides from the region, they join us now to tell us what makes Sorrento so bellissimo. Thank you, Anne, and thank you, Aldo, for being
2: with us. Ciao, thank, you. thank you so much. Aldo, tell us your story. Are you uh, from Amalfi or where yeah, are you from? My, my family comes from the Amalfi coast, uh, not far from Sorrento. The beautiful Sorrento. Where but, exactly was your um, family? Praiano. Praiano, the it's little beautiful. tiny town next to Positano. Next to Positano. Positano is very uh, fashionable, very upmarket, but Praiano is so authentic. Oh, and it's uh, a long,
0: skinny town, isn't it?
2: Long, skinny. Along the road, with along a, the road, with a beautiful mature, Mo-
0: majolica
2: church. Si. How do you say the? Ma- ma- Magnolica? Magnolica. Magnolica. Oh, which is a gonna... very important characteristic of okay. the architecture of the Amalfi Coast. And Anne, you don't sound Italian to me.
3: Well, and the name gives it away as well. I'm from outside of uh, Chicago, Illinois, originally, but I've been 33 years living above Sorrento. Uh, Went over on vacation several times, ended up staying to see if I could learn the language, and... Have gotten a husband and a son out so of it. So you
0: went there 33 years ago, and you you fell in love with the limoncello.
3: <laughs> the, limoncello <laughs> wasn't such a big thing back love there. It. Oh yes, we we were more into uh, uh, martini, <laughs> martini and rosia. The limoncello then. was 33 years 33 ago. 33 years, we did, you didn't hear about limoncello is at all. Is that
0: right? So limoncello
2: is a modern. It's a. Mod- uh, they
3: used to make it at home. They used to serve it at home. Mom, but my mom, was... mom,
2: yeah, my mom, she makes such a wonderful limoncello. Uh, what's her trick? Yeah, uh, well, I cannot tell you. You have to come. <laughs> to the Amalfi Coast <laughs> yeah, <you> would. No. <laughs> but every uh, Christmas I get about more than 150 bottles of limoncello no yeah because it's a good digestive but we like it so much that after lunch instead of feeling better we fall asleep it's too strong <laughs> right. it's Great. very strong very oh it's strong. a dangerous drink that way oh yeah but we love it so no. your family makes limoncello yeah we in? make limoncello we make the wine this is the way economy is going on the Amalfi Coast definitely more right?
0: into the good living things oh so. yeah and tell me more about the limoncello that. Uh, but, uh, well, actually, you you actually fell in love with a uh, with an Italiano. With an
3: Italiano, but uh, he he'd introduced me to limoncello after a while. <laughs> okay, so we're we're <laughs> that, talking. We're that talking. made childbirth easier, you know. Is that okay? <laughs>
0: Lemoncello is the the, the magic potion. And uh, when you drive down the Amalfi Coast, you find these wonderful farmer stands where they're selling all these lemons.
2: Yeah, Do you know know the recipe? It's made with the rind of lemons, pure alcohol and water. And it's so good. That's lemoncello. And a little sugar sugar as well, definitely. So if I want to actually
0: make some Mm lemoncello, what would I do?
3: you have to have a certain type of lemon of course that's why yeah. we're famous because so it's our lemon it's not the it's, actual it's, lemon it's, a, it's yellow rind? you never get any of the ah. white in there because it'll make it bitter okay. and you put it in alcohol and hermetically seal it for a week 8 days
0: and apparently different families have their different magic potions That's right,
3: right. oh yeah and how much what good alcohol they use what grain alcohol they use How much sugar they add to it after. Even
0: lemonade. I've been walking around the Amalfi Coast. I meet somebody and they pick a lemon out of the tree and they cut it and they squeeze it and they drop in some sugar and you've got yourself.
2: That's ah. the great richness. Don't forget, when you buy a bottle of limoncello, it has to be put in the fridge. Oh, yeah. It has to be cold. Oh, of course. That's That's nice.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking Lemon Cello. Actually, we're talking Amalfi Coast, the area south of uh, Napoli, south of Naples, uh, the most dramatic coastline. And when people are talking Amalfi Coast from a tourist point of view, actually, they're talking that area because you've got the most treacherous and scenic coastline, the Amalfi Coast. You've got uh, the resort on there, the Positano. Sorrento is the bigger town, which is just a 45-minute commuter train ride south of Napoli, which is just an urban jungle. Mount Vesuvius is up there where you've got Pompeii and Herculaneum and uh, Sorrento is sort of in the shadow of Mount Vesuvius that lost its cap with the eruption and then you've got the island of Capri which is so romantic and it's been a resort destination forever. Oh, yeah. And then just south of Amalfi, you've got Pastum, the Greek site, the right. Greek ancient site. So there's so much to see there.
3: That's it. The history goes back thousands of years.
0: So Anne, you've been entertaining people and uh, basically you live outside of Sorrento. Right. What's the What's the best home base and what's the best sightseeing strategy if you've got three or four days for that well, area? Well,
3: Sorrento has always been the place that uh, has attracted people. It is safe to walk around. The people are very friendly. There's so many restaurants, so many hotels that they can go to and it certainly makes a big difference that it's easily uh, hooked up with public transportation. If you want to boat over to Capri, it's 25 minutes. You want to go by train around to Naples or by hydrofoil, it's you know 45 minutes. If you want to go down the Amalfi Coast buses and in high season, boats that go down.
0: Naples is a wonderful place. And we're not going to talk about Naples in this interview, but if you're going to do Naples... It's more enjoyable, I think, to stay in Sorrento and side trip into Naples because Naples is so crazy and Sorrento is so elegant and easy. Yeah you, don't, yeah,
3: you don't know the good and bad parts in Naples, but there are no bad parts in Sorrento. That's
0: right. You can't go wrong in Sorrento, really. And from Sorrento, you can take the boat right to Naples or you can take the commuter train. Right. Both works just fine. So Sorrento would be the convenient home base.
2: Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I agree with Anne. It's got it's got everything. It's very uh, international. In, yes,
0: Aldo, why is Sorrento so international? Yeah, international. I mean,
2: it's very British, first of all. But uh, it's such a beautiful place because uh, during the day it's very bustling. You got the Neapolitans uh, driving the scooters, Six or seven people driving the scooters at the same time. <laughs> the helmet is just a pure decoration. It's like a, there are sections of Sorrento that looks like a small Naples. Yeah. So sometimes you don't really have to go to Naples. You got your old Sorrento over there. It's got your, your quintessential Italian exuberance mm-hmm. there. Yeah, if you really want to understand. The passeggiata. Something, oh, yeah, and the evening passeggiata. I love the passeggiata. I do that. Yeah, what is your tip for the passeggiata? Well, in I have Sorrento? to dress it up in black. This is the paseo that everybody's yeah. strolling out. Is it yeah. be, generally before dinner? Yeah, before before dinner for the aperitivo, but also after dinner. We yeah. like walking. So it depends When's,
3: on the day of the week yeah, because on Saturday. Sunday you do it before church, you do it after church, yeah. you do it after lunch, you do it in the <laughs> yeah. evening. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And a lot of times it's after the sun's gone down. People can come right. out. They've when done their hot. work. It's not. It's more relaxing now. And Aldo, take us on the stroll down the main drag in Sorrento uh, during the passeggiata.
2: I love. I love starting. The, in my opinion, the starting point could be Piazza Tasso, yeah. the main square. This is really a kind of amphitheater. You know, my starting point would be Davide. Isn't see. C- see. Si, <laughs> <si.
3: laughs> oh, we're talking ice cream now. See, when you're talking about the ice cream, <laughs> the gelato, uh, see.
0: Si. <laughs> Tell us about the Davide.
3: Davide's See. is the oldest ice cream shop we have in Sorrento, and they still owned by the same family. Still Amazing. homemade flavors, the freshest fruit uh, yeah, flavors. Yeah, they're very proud of it. Very proud. So of I, it.
0: I like to go into Davide and pick up my nice gelato. <laughs> and then, okay, excuse me. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll go. Oh. I just had to work in some gelato. But uh, yes, starting thing.
2: from Piazza Tasso, then having a walk along Corso Italia. Yeah, this is our fashion show. Yes. In other words, yeah. we like dressing up, taking our children, taking the Chihuahua dogs. Sometimes with the Gucci color and then we're all dressing up in black and then everyone is there looking at us. Right. That's what we're doing.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We are having fun in the Amalfi region of Italy with Sorrento as our home base. A little bit juiced up with the limoncello and uh, on a sugar high from our gelato. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Karen's on the phone from Santa Rosa, California. Karen, thanks for joining our conversation.
4: Hello. Very good to talk to you, Rick. Thanks. Uh, We're heading to Italy. Uh, The last five nights of our trip will be in Sorrento. And we'd just like some advice on how do we maximize what we want to see between Pastum, Pompeii, Capri, uh, the Malti Coast, and still have time to relax and enjoy the wine and people, the food and that type
0: of thing. You know, uh, Karen, you've got five nights in Sorrento, and that's a great, that's a real blessing, because it's the home base for so much wonder. Aldo, if you had five nights, that's four days in Sorrento, yeah. give us an outline of how would you divide your time very
2: quickly. Well, I would definitely spend, ciao Karen, first of all, I would definitely spend the first day in uh, Sorrento, exploring right. Sorrento, yeah, because it's actually quite big mm-hmm. as a town, and then it's made of different villages all together then I would definitely uh, visit in the island of Capri, okay. which is very easy to visit. And that's
0: just an hour away by boat something? It's just or something. about
2: half an hour half journey. An hour. Yeah, half an hour with the fast okay. one, and then you can reach Capri. and okay. you can So one go. day in Sorrento, yeah. one day out
0: for Capri. You could spend a whole day on Capri. Oh, really definitely. Easy. You could
2: spend a whole day. Then another day could be the Amalfi Coast, which is not far away from uh, Sorrento. And there's different ways to do the Amalfi Coast. You can hmm? hire a
0: taxi with a driver. You can take uh-huh. the bus. Then once you get on that bus, it's a gorgeous,
2: uh, definitely. dramatic scene. Definitely, yeah. dramatic beauty. And then you you got at the Positano, Amalfi, Ravello. And then uh, uh, going to is a little bit far away, I want right. to be honest with you, because we're talking about a little bit yeah. farther down the Amalfi so Coast. So she's only got
0: four days. We yeah. spent one in Sorrento, one in Capri, one in Amalfi. She really needs to spend then, one
2: day in Napoli and Pompeii. And then you got at the beautiful archaeological Pompe- area of Pompeii. So that would be something not to be missed, definitely. So in this way, you can manage... To, see, to have a taste, let's say, of Sorrento, the Amalfi Coast?
4: One other question I have. My husband on windy roads, if he's driving, fine. If he's not driving, not so fine. Oh so boy. what would you suggest is the best way to see the Amalfi Coast along yeah, you know, from Positano to Amalfi without
0: ending my marriage Aldo what Aldo has a nickname for the Amalfi Coast
2: <laughs> uh, I call it the Amalfi <laughs> the Amalfi Coast is the Mamma Mia Road I don't know if yeah. you're familiar with it because uh, it is beautiful uh, magical breathtaking but it's a little bit scary especially when you drive I mean when I was a child I used to do it with a scooter can you believe it uh, but uh, I'm no. not suggesting you to do that with a scooter but uh, I like calling Mamma Mia Road because once you're there you look at the deepness you say Mamma Mia <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. and when you're You've had many guests, and you've taken many people on the Amalfi. What is your recommendation if somebody wants to save their marriage and not have that do-it-up with your own car?
3: From Sorrento, in high season, they start boats that go down the Amalfi coast. From Sorrento, they go to Positano and finish in Amalfi. That boat might be possible, and that's not a bad way for somebody who has motion sickness.
0: You know, that's right, okay. because it is, any way you cut it, you know, uh, Karen, it's, it's jaw-droppingly beautiful, yeah. but it's also enough to make you car sick. Karen, you've got yourself a lot of opportunities using Sorrento as a home base.
2: Yeah,
4: yeah, I'm excited.
0: Can't oh, wait. Man, yeah. you're going it, to, it's going to, and don't miss the limoncello. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah,
5: absolutely. Okay, yeah.
0: ciao, and buona, not, not, I'm going to say buon viaggio, I'm going to say, uh, how do you say good luck? Buona fortuna. Buona, buona fortuna. fortuna. Sí. Okay, ciao, Karen. Ciao, Karen. Gra- ciao. Gra- gra- ciao. Grazie. Ciao. Anne Long and Aldo Valerio. Thank you so much for charging us up for Sorrento and the Amalfi Coast. Come and see us.
2: Grazie. Buon viaggio.
0: If uncertainty about flying has ever kept you from traveling the places you'd love to visit, then our next guest is just for you. We get a pilot's perspective on the experience of buckling yourself in to fly halfway across the world. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. how well your next flight goes can set the tone for your entire vacation. And understanding how things really work from the perspective of the crew can make your experience as a passenger much more comfortable and reduce the frustration and even the fear on your next flight. That's why we've invited Patrick Smith to join us right now. He's a commercial pilot, and Patrick has written a book called Cockpit Confidential, everything you need to know about air travel. Patrick, thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: So when we buckle up and raise our tray tables and raise our seats to their upright and locked position, you're up in the cockpit. What's it like to take off? What goes through your mind? Is there a thrill? Is there a fear? Is there a, oh, no turning back now. What's it like?
1: Well, for some of us, uh, those of us like me who wanted to fly commercially going as far back as we can remember, um, you know, there's always a certain thrill each time you leave the ground. That sounds corny, but, but really it's true. Now the takeoff itself is is a very procedural thing. So you're you're busy and you're concentrating, but there's always just enough room in the back there for some uh emotional aspect, I guess, where you're you're excited to be going. Do you ever go woohoo? No. <laughs> no, 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 no.
0: And I think we should just set the standards here. 25,000 planes take off safely in the United States every day and it's been more than 10 years since there's been a a major commercial airline catastrophe. So record is darn good.
1: And that's a record going back, by the way, depending how you look at it, at least as far as the advent of the jetliner and by some statistical interpretation, you could say in the entire history of commercial aviation.
0: It is astounding how statistically, how ridiculously safe it is. I mean, thousands of people die every year on the roads, but flying, you got 2 billion flights a year for, as far as passengers are concerned in the United States, and, you know, it's remarkably safe. You know, just when you get off, I always feel this little um, cut in the engine or a little bit of a drop, and that always makes my heart tick a little faster. What's going on when you have that engine drop moments after takeoff?
1: In the book, I call that the climb-out cutback. Uh, It's very routine for airplanes to reduce power shortly after takeoff during the initial climb just as a way of, of staying slow um, at that point because uh, there are certain speed limits below certain altitudes. And as a way of saving engine power, it's really not the, the sort of deceleration that people interpret it as. The plane is not slowing down. It's just no longer accelerating as quickly. So you've got
0: off the ground and you've you've gotten through that barrier. You've kind of crashed through the surf and then you can pull back a little bit. Is that the idea? That's a decent way to put it, Sure basically, just so I, I understand the situation here, generally, planes fly how fast and how high?
1: The two magic words in uh, commercial aviation are, it depends. I lost track of how many times I had to right. write that in the book, but it it really does vary on the type of airplane, the, the route that you're on, the distance that you're flying, air traffic control constraints, uh... The weight of the aircraft, uh, we could go on and on.
0: But if I'm flying from Seattle to Chicago and I'm midway through the flight and I look out the window, am I going 600 miles an hour at 30,000 feet or in that ballpark?
1: Yes, in that ballpark. Okay. That's, that's about right. Now, there's a few points that
0: you brought up in the book that I thought were, were interesting, and I'd love to share with our, our listening audience. First of all, a lot of people are concerned about Boeing or Airbus. Is it a matter of style or comfort or safety? Which which one is better And how do airlines judge, you know, what they prefer?
1: I'm asked this question all the time, Airbus versus Boeing. It's, you know, what it comes down to really is personal preference. It's sort of Apple versus uh, PC, Coke versus Pepsi, if you will. You know, when you start comparing airplane to airplane and wondering which one is safer, you get into this uh, statistical hair splitting that kind of drives me crazy. It's the same when you're doing airline against airline. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, maybe on some statistical level, airplane A or airline A is safer than airplane B or airline B. But in a practical sense, they're they're all safe. Oh, that's good Um, to know. Yeah. You know, otherwise, you're hashing things out to the fifth decimal point. Right. and and really, if if that makes you feel better, um, <laughs> go ahead. but but there's no real reason to do that. Pick Good. your flight based on price, convenience, and and which airline you like, uh, not on which airplane is is you think is the one you're going to be flying on. there's There's really no reason to do that.
0: I'm Rick Steves. This is travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Patrick Smith. Patrick's been a pilot for over twenty years. He doesn't say what airline he flies for. But he's written an amazing everything-you-need-to-know-about-air travel book called Cockpit Confidential. Patrick, uh, a lot of people talk about cabin air, how it's uh, not safe, how it's recycled, how it's um, gassed so you all are more mellow. What's the the truth about cabin air?
1: Well, the truth, hard as it is for many people to believe, is that the air quality on commercial planes is a lot cleaner than it's given credit for. It's often a lot cleaner than the air in in, uh, a movie theater or or a classroom.
0: So you guys don't do anything uh, in the crew among flight attendants and pilots to stay healthier because of the air?
1: No, and there are these urban myths that uh, the pilots tinker with oxygen levels or cut down on the airflow to partly sedate the passengers. <laughs> I mean, these things are patently ridiculous. That stuff <laughs> simply doesn't happen.
0: Okay, that's good to know.
1: And how does a pilot
0: handle red-eye flights? Are you scheduled with jet lag in mind, or do you just get good at overcoming jet lag?
1: I think you just get good at overcoming it. It's something that, as professionals, we have to deal with, and, and we get used to it. I fly a lot of long-haul international roots nowadays and um it's just something you you expect and have to deal with you know i, I try to rest up before a, a long haul flight a red eye flight it's just uh, be ready for it be rested try to stay on a good diet try to exercise and and you can deal with things like that much better
0: this is travel with rick steves our phone number is 877-333-7425 and marianne's on the line in duluth georgia marianne thanks for your call
5: Well, thank you so much, and Patrick, I've been enjoying your comments about about flying. Uh, You remind me of my father who always taught me to look at the clouds and see how beautiful it is up there. I'm only 61, but I've had a few health issues lately They've resulted in Coumadin and um, a need to get up and walk around more often.
0: So that's to decrease the risk of blood clots. Correct, correct, Mm -hmm. and and
5: while this is not hopefully an ongoing thing, I will be making a trip with my husband and family to Amsterdam, and then later in the year to Italy, and wanted to ask, is it okay? I know it's okay to get up and walk around when the lights are off, but do the stewardesses understand? I always worry that I'm going to um, be infringing on some of the other passengers who might resent my walking around. I just kind of wanted to get an idea, a feel of what Captain Smith has to say about that.
1: Hmm. Well, if the cabin crew are in the middle of a service, then sure, you could potentially get in the way and it could be a little awkward, but I, I encourage people to get up and walk around when they can to get exercise and, and to feel better and to reduce the risk of what's called a deep vein thrombosis. That's the uh, clotting phenomena that that Rick just alluded to. Some long-haul carriers, Singapore Airlines, for example, they set up a buffet, a snack buffet in the rear of the economy cabin and... On one hand, it's there as a service. On the other hand, though, it encourages people to get up and walk around and, and reduce the risk of injury.
0: So that is a good idea. If you're on an eight-hour flight between continents, make a point to get up and walk. I think whether you you realize you have a problem or not, it's probably just smart to get up and walk a little bit, uh, as Marianne's suggesting.
5: Well, um, I appreciate that, that very much.
0: Hey, thanks, Marianne, for your call.
5: Listen, thank you. Uh, thank you both.
0: Take care. Bye-bye. Patrick, your book deals with some some fascinating issues that people just are curious about. Let's just go through these uh, pretty briefly and uh, allay some concerns. Why does the airline care about electrical stuff when you're taking off and landing? I can't imagine it really messes things up in the, in the cockpit, uh. although I was on a bus once, and my driver said, you're not supposed to use the cell phone, and I turned my cell phone on in the back of the tour bus. Later on, he showed me in the little wheel that measured all of his speed. It all went haywire when I turned my cell phone on. So my little cell phone on the tour bus did have an impact on his control panel at the front of the bus. Is that what they're concerned about uh, Well, with, a, with an aer- look, airplane? It,
1: look, it's, it's unlikely that a cellular phone is going to cause some sort of disruption in the cockpit, but it's not impossible. Mm-hmm. And there have been cases in the past, at least three that I know of, where cell phone interference may have been a factor in an accident. There was a case in Switzerland uh, and at least two others. Uh, this mm. is going back a number of years, and Again, it's not likely, but it's not impossible. There's a lot that we just don't know, and I think air, the airlines safe and regulators, yeah, I, I think the airlines and regulators for now are just erring on the safe side. And ultimately, you know, maybe what it really is is a social issue, and mm-hmm. airlines just don't want to get to a point where all of a sudden hundreds of people are talking on airplanes, and, right. and it <laughs> no. sets up this, uh, you know. Uh, one group of people hating the other group of people, and 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 right, I'd vote for it that. It becomes a mess, and they just don't want to go there.
0: Does a cell phone actually work from thirty thousand feet in an airplane? No, it doesn't. Okay, why can't airlines find a faster way to to get the boarding procedure done? It just seems ridiculous.
1: It is pretty chaotic and haphazard at times. I mean, um, if
0: everybody just walked in and kept their luggage on their lap until everybody was on the airplane, and then they would say, "Okay, now stick it upstairs." You could board the plane in a third of the time.
1: It's gotten better, though. It has, especially now that airlines have moved to uh, what they call zone or group seating. Mm. Yeah, that's an improvement. Um, and one thing people can do to make the process easier, and this is something I talk about in the book, it, it drives me crazy when somebody walks onto an airplane, sticks their rollerboard bag into the first empty bin that they come to, mm. and then go and take their seat in the very back of the plane. It's tempting when you see that empty bin uh-huh. as soon as you walk on, but what happens is. The forward bins fill up. And then people coming on late who are seated in the front can't find bin space and have to go backwards down the aisle to stow their belongings. And it creates this uh, oh, and then, log jam. And then when you're and then leaving, on arrival oh, on yeah. arrival, the same thing happens in reverse where people who are seated up front have to go backwards to get their things I before hadn't disembarking. Thought of that. And that causes a horrible mess. I wish the carriers would make an announcement, Mm -hmm. just reminding people please use the bins uh, closest to your seats, Uh, or maybe even assigning a bin the way they assign a seat number. Maybe at some point uh, that could be tried and see if it works. Your
4: attention please. Your attention please. Your attention please. Indian Airlines announces the departure of their flight IC 408 to Calcutta.
5: Passengers are requested to proceed
0: to the air I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm speaking with Patrick Smith, and Patrick's been a pilot for 20 years, taking us where we need to go safely and comfortably on an airline he will not name because he's written a very uh, candid book about the airline industry, Everything You Need to Know About Air Travel. It's called Cockpit Confidential. Patrick, uh, this is a travel show, and you travel for a living. When you're sitting in the cockpit, 30,000 feet above the earth, going 600 miles an hour. Do you have a, a joy of travel in any way? And if so, describe it to us. What's a beautiful moment just from a, wow, I'm traveling point of view for a pilot?
1: Well, you know, I, I think that I'm different from most airline pilots in that it's not merely the, the hands-on thrill of driving the airplane that excites me. It's, it's where the airplane is going. And I feel very privileged nowadays to be able to fly a lot of long-haul international routes, uh, flying to Europe and then South America and Africa and the Middle East. I mean, that, to me, is what makes my job exciting. Mm. Um, When I was a little kid, I used to study not airplanes, but the airlines. I would open timetables and look at the route maps, and that, in turn, turns me on to geography and I got interested in, in foreign places and foreign cultures, and, and putting the two together, kind of the, the love of flying and, and the love of places, you know, I think I'm in a great spot where I'm able to visit you know countries all around the world as part of my job. I mean, how cool is that?
0: That's very cool. And, uh, of course, you're excited to be going to Rio or Paris or wherever, but when you're actually up in the air and you see a little mountain peeking through the clouds or a special view of a, of a sunset across the ocean, what are some of the majestic scenes just just to be there in the moment when you're in the cockpit
1: there's a segment in the book where I talk about some of my favorite views from aloft um, flying over Greenland for example, and that's something that transatlantic travelers uh, can experience all the time. A lot of the uh transatlantic flights depending on the routing will will often pass over the southern part of greenland and it the view can be so amazing and it's it's Depressing because you look around the cabin and everybody's got their shades down. Nobody bothers to look yeah. outside. Where <laughs> if you took a peek, you, you'd see this incredible vista of glaciers and mountains. It almost looks like another planet flying over um, parts of Guyana in South America and seeing, looking down on one of the last uh, intact uh, mm-hmm. large scale tracts of, of virgin rainforest left in the world, where Brazil and, and Guyana and, and Venezuela come together as one of the few real frontiers left uh, on the planet, and you can look down from an airplane, and and granted you're not down there in it, but you can see it. It's it's right there. At the opening of the segment, Rick, you touched on um, the passengers' uh, lost uh, appreciation, let's call it, for flying. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a, I I don't want to say there's a sense of entitlement out there among passengers, but it's something like that. You know, let's look first at, at fares. There was a study that came out not too long ago that showed that airfares are 50 percent, on average, less right now than they were 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. That's pretty amazing. I mean, once upon a time, it cost uh, six, seven, eight thousand dollars to fly to Europe, right? Flying coast to coast in the U.S. Was, was thousands of dollars. Flying was something that not everybody could do, and that's completely different now. It's now a form of mass transit. For yeah. lack of a better term, and while you know that has meant a lot of the amenities and and the grace of the experience, you know is is somewhat gone. On the other hand, it's something now that everybody can do and almost everybody can afford, and people don't often acknowledge that.
0: You know, it's easy to complain about it, but you're right. They're complaining about a time when when it was an upper class activity and it cost double what it costs now in real dollars. I I remember when point to point flights in Europe were just. Unaffordable. Nobody who's spending their own money would ever fly point to point in Europe. You'd take the train. Now, it's actually cheaper to fly than it is to take the train almost any long flight.
1: And people talk about the, the good old days of flying, and, and I think there's a certain mythology to that. You know, I flew the other night from, I was going from Tokyo to Bangkok, and I was sitting in economy class, and I had a seat. Granted, maybe once upon a time I had another inch or two of legroom, but in this seat I had a thirteen inch video monitor with with a touch screen and a choice of about a hundred and fifty movies to watch. You rem- remember the days when movies were shown on that blurry, scratchy yeah. old oh, yeah. screen up in front of the bulkhead <laughs> and you had the you had plastic earplugs <laughs> that, that dug into your head. You've got Wi Fi on airplanes now. That the meal I had on that flight to Bangkok was probably better than the meal I would have had thirty years ago in economy class. Yeah. You know, all of that for you know, the equivalent of maybe five or six cents per mile mm-hmm. in fares. And and meanwhile, about 85 or so percent of commercial flights arrive on time. Mm-hmm. And we haven't even gotten to safety yet, where you've got this spectacularly good uh, safety record. So, you know, here we are.
0: And, Patrick, you have to put up with 20 minutes of... TSA sort of um, silliness, and uh, okay, that's a small price to pay to to be safe and economic and get around the world uh, almost effortlessly at 600 miles an
1: hour. Flying is affordable. It's it's mostly reliable, and it's astonishingly safe. Those three things taken together, you know, what what more can you want? Is it really that bad of a way to go? That's not to say that the hassles of flying aren't duly noted. Mm-hmm. Uh, you just touched on TSA. Mm-hmm noisy airports, crying babies, uh, airlines that may not always be the best uh, communicators when it comes to uh, you know, relaying I problems always, and delays I was, to passengers, but...
0: Patrick, I always like to look out the window down at the earth below and imagine being on a bus going where I'm going today and what that would be like instead. And then I don't care how tight my knees are. I don't care how much there isn't a luncheon and how tired I am of those little packets of peanuts. I'm happy to be on that airplane. Patrick Smith, author of Cockpit Confidential, thanks a lot, and best wishes with your flying. Thank you, Rick. We'll keep the phones open a bit longer and check in with listeners who've got travel reports of their own to share with us at 877-333-RICK about how they enjoy experiencing the world at any age. It's travel with Rick Steves. We often hear reports of fun adventures from our traveling listeners who email us at radio at telling us highlights from their latest travels. We thought we'd contact a few of them right now to let them share their experiences with all of us at 877-333-7425. Jerry's on the line in Monsey, New York. Jerry, tell us about an experience you've had in France.
6: Well, we had a very interesting experience. Uh, we had been to France about four or five times before, but this trip was a little unusual. Uh, Air France had lost our luggage uh, two times before, so after many phone calls and writings, they decided to give my wife and I a round trip to Europe.
0: So wait a minute, they lost your luggage and you, you got your luggage back and they still gave you two round we, trip tickets? Yeah,
6: picks? we got it back about two or three days later, and then after, uh, which is very uh, frustrating. They, find they, they gave us a round trip to uh, Europe.
0: You've got to love those French.
6: Well, I was very nice of them, yeah. but it was also not very nice losing my luggage. <laughs> no.
0: <laughs> okay. So you finally got to France. Where did yeah, you fly so we, into we, and we what did you do? We flew
6: to it? Bordeaux, France,
0: uh-huh. and
6: picked up a nice Nissan, and we drove up the Pouliac through the wine country. From there, we went over to uh, the caves of Lascaux, and down to Alvi, where Toulouse-Lautrec uh, lived, and over to the fortress of uh, Carcassonne, down along the coast uh, to Marseille and Nîmes, uh, we only had reservations at the beginning and the end of the trip, the two of us.
0: Before we go further, Jerry, how did you like the caves at Lascaux?
6: The caves at Lascaux, the original caves, been closed off because people were destroying it with the uh, uh, breathing, etc. So, so they had made a replica cave, which was just like the original caves. It was marvelous. The area around there is gorgeous. You'll see it in, in posters, etc. It's real French countryside, and it's away from the mainstream. It's not like Paris or the other places. You can see the real French people.
0: Now, I understand that you go through the cave with a guide and a group. Did the guide help bring the the meaning of the paintings in the cave to life?
6: Yes, the guide was very helpful. In fact, I think there's a movie out now which uh, discusses the uh, caves in France.
0: That's right. So if you can actually see that, you can't see the real cave, but you can see a perfect replica, and you hardly know the difference when you go through the reservation.
6: Absolutely. It's amazing that people uh, thousands of years ago were able to do this artwork in the it's, caves, it's like lying 20... on their backs with no just some candlelight.
0: What is it, Twenty or 30,000 years ago? Five times as old as the pyramids. It's just incredible. Hey, you also went to Carcassonne, Europe's greatest medieval walled fortress city.
6: Absolutely. That it, was, that was Gorgeous. You get into the, into the hall and parked your car outside. We went into the little narrow streets through the town, and it was absolutely uh, beautiful and just by ourselves without being in a tour group.
0: Carcassonne is kind of a fairy tale town, but you went to Marseille, which we is just the opposite. We went, went That's a gritty port town, like the second biggest powerhouse city in France. Did you, uh, did you find Marseille was sort of brutal and exhausting, or did you find any charm in it?
6: No, it was charming because we went right down to the waterfront, and we, uh, we spoke and saw the fishermen bringing in the catch of the day.
0: Wow, good so That was you. very
6: interesting. I didn't go through the seedy areas, uh, but the waterfront area is beautiful.
0: In your day-to-day travels in France, Jerry, what would you do for a typical lunch and so on?
6: Well, i say the lunch, we would go into a uh, local food market and pick up something we like, like cheese and wine, etc., go out to our car... It was a nice sunny day. Spread it out, have a little picnic on the hood of the car, have our wine, and it was marvelous.
0: <laughs> Sounds great. Jerry, you're an inspiration. Thanks for reporting and continued happy travels.
6: Thank you very much. That's pretty good for two old senior citizens.
0: I think that's an inspiration for two old senior citizens. I think we'll all be there remembering.
6: miles just by
0: ourselves. How many miles?
6: 1,600 miles.
0: My goodness. Well, bon voyage on your next exper- uh, adventure, too. Merci beaucoup. Okay, bye now. And bon shots. <laughs> And Shirley's on the phone in Vashon Island, Washington. Shirley, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Do you have a travel story to share with us?
7: Um, the fall of 2009, we're walking across England, a girlfriend and I. Yeah. The, I had just retired from 41 years of high school teaching, and I needed somewhere to go when everybody else was headed back to
0: school. So you're a kid in your 60s.
7: I'm 66 in April.
0: <laughs> and you walked from coast to coast across England with your girls. We girlfriend. did, and we
7: got lost every day but one.
0: Wow. Now, how many miles and how many days, roughly?
7: Well, we had plenty of days. People chuckled at how long we'd given ourselves. But given that we got lost every day and added miles and miles <laughs> to our itinerary, we needed those days. Um, we had planned on 21 days, and we actually, to our own surprise, arrived a day early at our first farm, so we packed an extra day in and walked 22 days. Two of them we'd scheduled as rest days, and of course we walked both of them. Um, We kind of hatched the idea. Just after a hike up in the Olympics one summer, we asked our husbands if they'd like to join us. One said, just shoot me, and the other said, I'd rather have root canal.
0: (laughs) So the two of us just took off, I think that's your. That was your opening. Let's go. All right. Now, but trying to get a, a sense of this, is it a hundred miles or, or roughly? Oh, what? It's
7: it's two hundred
0: plus. Two hundred miles, and the yeah. way you did it, it was probably three hundred miles.
7: Well, maybe <laughs> not that far, but okay. But you're been.
0: walking around in a few circles. Now, yeah, there you go. So, did you tell me just this? You were staying in B and Bs or hostels? Or well, we had
7: or um, my friend Cheryl, my walking partner, had read uh, Wainwright's Coast to Coast Walk. His little book that he wrote in 1971.
0: So this is in the north of England.
7: It's in the north of England, and he just Wainwright has
0: all those peaks in the Lake District in the country. Exactly. And Lake
7: his his aim in this book was not to set out a guidebook for a particular route, but to inspire people to create their own personal ventures as they walk from coast to coast. And he suggested we followed it as closely as possible, but it's more of an ode. To northern england than it is you know a practical mm-hmm. guide
5: sure
7: and we started in on the uh, irish sea coast at saint bees mm-hmm. and walked through farmland and then through the lake country and through more fabulous farmland into the yorkshire dales and then more farmland i think that was the vale of mowbray and then we got into the fabulous beautiful, vast, empty moors. I think oh, that was wow. my favorite part. And then have dropped down to the North Sea and finished our walk at Robin Hood Bay.
0: Now, you were going through James Harriet country there for a while, weren't you? We
7: were. We stayed in Reef one night. Oh, yeah. And we had opted to stay on farms mainly. We stayed in a couple of private homes and some B&Bs and a couple of inns. It was a mix. It was just
0: quite the adventure. Let me get this straight. You and your girlfriend have uh, rucksacks on your back?
7: Well, yes. We took a day pack uh, every day and... Lindsay and Simon, who run a little business called Pack Horse.
0: Ah, uh, that's what I was getting at. So this is they, sort of a little bit of a tour. They would go ahead they and...
7: collected a small carry-on bag nice. for us and moved it to the next
0: one. Now, spot. that's nice. So they took your gear ahead and... They
7: not only took the gear ahead, they planned it out for us so that we really had the luxury of getting up, having a wonderful farm breakfast, squirreling away enough in our pack for lunch.
0: And then just lollygagging all yes! day through the countryside. Whoa.
8: Absolutely.
0: Tell us about the North York Moors, or the the majesty of the moorland, because that is more stark than James Harriet country, I believe.
7: Oh, definitely. Um, we spent three days on the, the high moors, the high dandy moors, I think they're called. Mm. It was the openness mm-hmm. of the moors that so impressed me. And we had a, quite a day uh, going over Honister Pass, which was the first real day in the lake country out of Ennerdale. Yeah. We'd walked along that long Ennerdale Lake.
0: And you got those glacial boulders strewn over.
7: Oh, the and they're fabulous. And, yeah. you know, no bridges. And you're just you're soaking. Your feet are soaking wet. And you don't even notice. Then we crossed at the far end of the lake and went through the forest. And it, the heavens opened up. I couldn't get my rain gear on on time. Mm. My pants were soaked the entire day. The jacket that I'd worn for years in the Northwest and it shed the rain was soaked through. (laughs) We just beavered on. We stayed at that little uh, black sail, that little isolated uh, youth hostel, and
0: beavered on. I love that. That's exactly what. Oh, it was so
7: wonderful. (laughs) We were there with other people from you know various parts of the world. And it was just the camaraderie and the, the warmth of spirit and of tea. There were two quite elderly ladies with tiny boots and gray hair who'd gone up for the day to, to hike one of the crags. And, of course, they decided they couldn't do it, but they had these big smiles. So six of us banded together, a woman from Wales and uh, Britt and we... Um, Stuck together as we went over the past because it was, I mean, it could blow you down. It was really exciting. Well, we finally, Cheryl and I, got to our farm, which is in Stonewaite, quite a ways down the other side. It was dark by the time we got there, and, and the door opened, and this tiny woman.
0: Are these, these old, old houses that are kind of... Um for short people almost?
5: Exactly.
7: Yeah, Yeah, they're like like little
5: little, like
0: Lilliputian houses because, I don't know, they're from 600 years ago or something, and they just built them really short so they could heat them easily, and I guess the people were just short.
7: Well, she opened the door. I'll never forget it. Here was this little lady, and she said, I, then, you'll be taking your wet togs off here. And she held her arms out, and I piled my clothes. I peeled layer after layer until eventually there I was standing in my bright orange underpants (laughs) and she just waited and said, and now you'll be going up to the shower and off to dinner then. (laughs) And I thought, what will happen to these wet clothes? Well, in the morning they were dry. She had hung them by her Rayburn and at breakfast, you know, I had a wonderful breakfast, enough to save for lunch and dry clothes.
0: You sound like you had the trip of a lifetime with your best friend. We
7: had a trip (laughs) of a lifetime and I came home with renewed optimism that the world is a good place and that we're all connected and that we're part of something big. I just hope to travel as far and as long as I can on these old knees.
0: Beautiful. You are an inspiration and share that with your neighbors. Thank you so much for calling. I will. Thank you,
7: Rick. Carry on. Okay, bye now. Bye.
0: We're checking in with listener travel reports where fun happens at any age at 877-333-7425. Or send us an email about your travels to radio at ricksteves.com. Cynthia's on the phone in Walker, Louisiana. Hi, Cynthia.
4: Hi, Rick. How you doing?
0: Doing great. Got some travel dreams percolating?
4: Yes. Um, my sister and I are planning on going to Europe, or we're thinking Ireland. We're, we're thinking all kind of things. We've never been anywhere outside the United States. And this is going to be... I'm retiring, and so uh, this is going to be our first time.
0: Wow, and, you are lucky! You get to go to Europe for your first time,
4: uh, and that's that's it. We don't even know where to start. We don't. That's kind of what I was hoping you could give me a good place to well, go for wh- the first time.
0: What's your heritage?
4: Well, actually, French, but we don't speak it.
0: <laughs> well, that doesn't matter too much. I mean, you probably want to work France in your itinerary. And where? What do you dream about from a travel point of view? If you think about Europe, what what's most appealing?
4: Uh, I guess the first thing that always comes to mind is Italy.
0: Yeah. yeah, And are you flexible to travel off-season rather than in the summer?
4: Uh, yes, we are.
0: So that would be very important because it's hot and it's crowded in the summer and you'll save a lot of I money see. and you'll just enjoy it and there's, less, there's just less intensity off-season. I would bundle up and, and go you know, as much off-season as you could. Paris is great all year long. You could go into Paris and then you could fly home from Rome and uh, you, know, you could just settle into Paris for a few days and then take the train down to the Italian uh, Riviera and you could enjoy Florence and see all the famous art. Then you could tour the hill towns around Tuscany and Umbria, and then finish with four days in Rome and see all the great sights there, and fly home from that. That would be a great two- or three-week trip.
4: Oh, it sounds wonderful.
0: One thing you got to remember is you're going to have a good time, and you're going to find a way to go back. So don't try to see everything. Assume you will return. Uh, if you yes. just wanted to go to Ireland, you could spend two weeks in Ireland having a wonderful time with your travel partner, and the next time you could go to Britain, and then the next time you could do Spain and Portugal. You know, you'll find that if you, if you have a good trip, you'll realize what a great way it is to spend your extra time and money, and you'll find a, another excuse to get over there. But if you try to do everything in a frantic flurry, then you'll have to do everything again in a frantic flurry, and it's just a very inefficient way to go. Yeah, that,
4: that makes sense.
0: All right. Hey, well, let us know how it goes, okay, Cynthia?
4: Okay, I sure will. Thank you. Thanks
0: for your call. Bye now. All
4: right, bye-bye.
0: And Betty's on the line in Gainesville, Florida. Hi, Betty.
8: Hi, how are you, Rick?
0: Great, thanks for your call. Do you have some uh, travel adventures or some tips you can share? Well,
8: we did. It was quite a few years ago. It was back in 1985, and we were 55, and my son was already over there. He traveled a lot by bike, And so he came home, and he says, Mom and Dad, will you go back with me? We'll do hostels. So we did, and he did hostels. And he introduced us, so the next year we decided we're going to do this on our own. We got some backpacks. Of course, everybody thinks we're nuts. (laughs) You know, they don't travel that way at our age, not nowadays anyhow. And so we put our backpacks on, and we we just had a wonderful time. We did the train. We did the ur Pass, so and that was wonderful because you can hop off and on the trains. We did the Rhine on the boat. We got to uh, Vienna, and we couldn't get in the hostel. And so then we went into Vienna, and the rooms were like $200. So uh, I said to my husband, I always had a second plan. I said, we're going to take that train and we're going to go to huh. and go to Berlin. <laughs> so we did. We got on the train and we got the compartment where we we laid on each bench, and we <laughs> we had a wonderful time. So I got to Berlin, and it was right after shortly after the wall came down, so it wasn't very pretty. So I said to Jim. Oh, let's take the train to Frankfurt <laughs> October <overnight. laughs> So we did that and then we rode the the uh, boat down the Rhine which was beautiful and we stayed in so many beautiful hostels. We stayed in the one that was where the Rhine and the Moselle meet. Yeah. That castle up on the hill. I can't oh, even
0: remember Erin Yes. That's an amazing place. Yeah. Oh yes. There's several castles overlooking the Rhine that you can actually sleep in. Youth hosteling, and then it's going to cost you, you know, 20 bucks a night, and you're going to have your, your members' kitchen where you can cook for it's the of groceries.
8: We went to the Hallstatt, was just beautiful. I loved Hallstatt.
0: Hallstatt is near south of Salzburg in Austria.
8: Yes, yeah, so we yeah. took the boat over there, and that was a beautiful that place. That
0: was in the hostel in Hallstatt. Uh huh. Was it the one um, at the end of the lake where it's kind of flat, or was it the one with the waterfall going right through it?
8: No, it was the one at the end of the lake.
0: Yeah, that's more the the more practical yeah. one and very friendly. And then you walk into town from there.
8: Yeah. And then we also, we were looking for our family roots and we went to Baden and Baden first. And we went to the baths and went to walk upstairs and one of them. The lady says, if you don't want to take your clothes off, don't come up here.
0: You walked upstairs <laughs> in the baths at Baden Baden. That's a naked city.
8: Yeah. <laughs>
5: <laughs> but oh
8: my goodness, we had such a good time. And I tell everybody about that, how you travel with the hostels but you know a lot of people just look at you like that's no way I'm going but I tell you it was the best trip we ever had
0: Betty you that is an inspiration and one of the great things about hostels is you sit in the family room there and you meet people young and old from all over the world and you know you can do that you can do that right now If you were in your 60s when you did this we were 55 56 They've taken the word youth out of the system now. It's just called hosteling instead of youth hosteling. And uh, if you're over 55, you get a, you actually get a discount on the membership card. And as you know, a lot of the hostels are in very historic buildings, even castles. With oh my goodness, with we had a whole by <laughs> ourselves once.
8: We, we've stayed at <laughs> a lot of castles, but we went also in Switzerland to the fall. It's like Niagara Falls.
0: That's the Rhine Falls, and from, yes, we're we right
8: at that hostel. You could go. Oh,
0: that's a great hostel. It's called oh. in Stein am Rhein, I think. Is the town? Yes, Stein- and you Amrain. can go at
8: night and walk through the uh, falls.
0: Just so our listeners know, that's right where France and Germany and Switzerland all come together and where yeah. the Rhine tumbles out of Lake Constance, and from that point onward, the Rhine becomes navigable. Uh, uh-huh. but, but that's the big Niagara Falls of that part of Europe, and it's uh, it. called Rhine Falls. And the little town, Stein am Rhine it's three words Stein yes. um, Ryan. it's got a great hostel and it is one of the most charming little towns all yes. right well Betty thank you so much for sharing and, and you got me thinking about uh, we can be hosteling well into our retirement years I think in still oh a you great sure time. can
8: I hope people you know realize that it's just a wonderful way to go
0: all right take care
8: thank you Rick you're Bye-bye. really good
0: thanks <laughs> bye 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 I don't need your rocking chair your chair or your med-
2: I
4: still got neon in my veins This gray hair don't mean a thing I do my rocking on the stage You can't put this possum in a cage My body's old but it ain't impaired
1: Travel with Rick Steves
0: is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick. Thanks for web help to Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern-Graham and to WBUR Boston for their production help today. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank.
1: You can listen again to this week's show, search our radio archives by air date or by topics, and find out when different radio stations web stream Travel with Rick Steves. It's all in the radio section of ricksteves.com. And we'll look for you again next
0: week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city, and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat, and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.